0: Like the business model, like recurring revenue, but the product is good and people are paying you every month or every year for it. And then you can start to count on them because you then start to learn your churn numbers and you can say, wow, like we have a sticky product. Once people join, they tend not to leave unless they go out of business. That's like a safety that, um, I, I, that's why I think I was scared to scale up the agency side. What's up y'all welcome to bootstrapping SaaS to millions mike and kevin here host of spectora today we're going to talk about business models pricing structure uh add-on products
1: i don't know we have a lot, a lot of thoughts swirling around in our head and we'll see where the conversation goes yeah i'm excited about these topics based on uh or inspired by a podcast we both listened to the other day um my first million with nate, nate barry on there the founder of convertkit and um yeah he 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 touched on a blog post he had about the ladders of wealth creation and it kind of made us want to talk about it from our context, from our perspective.
0: Yeah. So we, we presume that people listening to this are either wanting to get into SaaS or already starting a SaaS company and trying to grow it. And, um, if you are already props to you, cause, uh, as he talked about, like SaaS is one of the, um, potentially most lucrative business models. Um, for those of you that are just contemplating it, maybe you're still working in a job where you're trading your time for money and um, nothing is wrong with that. If you know what you're using it for, I think both you and I have done um, trading time for money, whether it's a salary job where we're just like, yep, trying to save up some cash or, um, you know, we, I've had my own like agency where you get these big projects. And if you can finish them more efficiently than what the the bid price was, you make some extra profit, but at the end of the day, you're still constantly hunting for new clients. And, um, and so, yeah, maybe we can dig into those a little bit and just like when when it's good to focus on these things and when it's good to say, Hey, these things are holding me back from really um, realizing my wealth potential.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then the visual helps we'll link to the the blog post for anyone that wants to look at the actual ladders that he, he charted out, but let's start at like the, place where no, no one here probably wants to be, which is salary working for a company Um, or even, even I think hourly working for a company is to click the definition of trading your time for money. And when you're not working, you're not making that hourly wage. And, um, and there's no scalable effects there. There's nothing you could do to double what you're making, right? You can maybe work hard and you get 10, even 20, 30% raise over the
0: course of a year, But that's really not significant if you're trying to become wealthy, right? Like even the highest earning professions like doctors, lawyers, yeah, you can probably get to a few million bucks in the bank. But like that pales in comparison to if you truly own a company that can scale, especially software, which can scale um, almost infinitely, right? Right. And so there's definitely a limitation. And I think the best times to say, I'm going to work trade hours for money, are well, one, when you're young and you don't have any capital, you don't have any ideas, you don't have any skills yet, Earnings, learning and earning on somebody else's dime, that's, that's not a bad place to be. And I would like to think that the people that work for us, they're learning how, how startups work. They're learning how to deliver amazing customer service. They're learning how to write code in a way that serves business needs. And these are all great places to be. For people that are aspiring entrepreneurs down the road, is like learn those skills, learn how to be just a, a good employee, a good person to all your clients, learn how to be consistent, reliable. That's sometimes things that are hard to learn if you're trying to start your own company because you need to pay the bills, right?
1: The only other time I think hourly working for a company is good is the flexibility. If it enables you to spend your other 30 hours uh, a week, on a project or a hobby or with your family. So like DoorDash, Uber, they provide the flexibility, but again, not going to build any real wealth doing that. So I think that's, that's clear. The salary working for a company is where most people sit. I don't know the numbers, but like, it's gotta be like 90, 90 plus percent of people. Right. Um, And it's because
0: it's easy, right? Like it's it's not easy. There's hard jobs, but it's safe. Maybe is a better word because you show up and you start getting paid on hour one. Whereas you try and start a business. It might be, Year one, you don't make any money, and that's the the risk
1: and reward. Excuse me, the risk and reward balance that you always have to consider, and it's a fixed amount of money for a non-fixed amount of work. And the the caveat to this is if you have if you have a salary working for a startup, like some of our employees do with equity profit sharing, that you can build real wealth from that. And so that's the minority of people I think that get equity in a in a crazy growth startup. Um, that's that's the the asterisks there. Yeah. So if we had to be prescriptive, if you're in a position
0: where you're trading your hours for dollars, think about what's the end goal? What do you need to have to like move up to the next level? And I think for many, starting a business, um, whatever you do, like my first business was taking college kids surfing and camping around California's coast. And yeah, I got to learn a lot of cool skills from that, like just how to set up a basic website, how to register a business, how to have that true ownership mentality and that accountability mentality where like the buck stops with me. But ultimately I had to keep finding new clients. I needed to, um, yeah, just every, every hour that I put into it, there was like a a max amount of money I can earn because I rented one van and I was driving it. And however many people I could fit in the van was how much money I can earn. And so it was a fun, fun gig. I learned a lot of great skills, but
1: obviously not this like path to massive wealth. But in hindsight, you were learning, not earning, and I think as long as people are clear on that, you know, they know the purpose. Um, so, charging by the project, hourly work for clients. Now we're talking like owning your own service business, like freelancing. So you you have extensive experience freelancing. So talk a little bit about what that life is like—the good, uh, the pros and the cons.
0: Yeah, when you, the pros are, you have this like feeling of control that you never had when you were an employee, right? So I. I find a project, you know, and how it, that that's the hard part. That's the cons is you're like constantly hunting for a new project. You're a salesperson. Yeah. yeah, you're a salesperson. Every time you're at a social situation, you're like, oh, by the way, I make websites and make mobile apps. I make web apps. Um, here's my card, here's my card. And then, the, and then the pros is once you get a job and there's some sort of timetable, you're like, all right, I'll give you deliverables in three weeks, six weeks and 12 weeks. Well, then you have this total flexibility. And you're just being paid to deliver the results. And so that's like, it it felt like if I was being babysat when I was at salary jobs, where I have to be in a cubicle, I have to be there between nine and five. And if I wasn't, then I was either feeling guilty or made to feel like I was doing something wrong. There was like constraints on how much time you can take off. Uh, I never liked that feeling. I think for many people, that feeling is um, confining. You feel like you're in a cage. And so being my own. Boss, even though I had like essentially always just a few clients that were my real bosses that, you know, that's where the bills were getting paid through. Um, There was like another level of freedom. And there was a a period of years where I traveled a lot. I was doing work from central South America, Eastern, Western Europe, just kind of bouncing around the world with a laptop. And as long as I had projects, I was able to have a a ton of freedom and I could work whenever I want. If I wanted to work overnight at a coffee shop, I could, And, and it was awesome. And, you know, I was able to make like a a low six figure living. I think there was years where I made like 150 K. Then there's years where I made like 60, 90 K. And to me, that was a ton for my like mid twenties. And um, there obviously though, that caps out. And if you have these like visions of having a bigger, um, like moving up to become a multimillionaire, it's gonna be really hard at an agency because then you just have to what, start managing people. And then there's all the meetings that come with that inefficiencies and you have to really scale to a massive level. Um, it's doable. I think there's people that, that bring agencies to like multi million dollar levels and become multimillionaires from it. It just seems like it's a lot harder because you always need a new pipeline of clients um, and you're at the mercy. Like maybe you have a, like what happened to me, I had this consistent pipeline of jobs from a Hollywood studio. And then when 2008 hit, they went under and suddenly I was like, Ooh, I had a lot of eggs in that one basket. And I was scrounging for like little projects here and there, two grand here, five grand there. And that's, um, it's a stressful way to live.
1: And I see this a lot. I mean, this is, I think the, the go-to business structure for someone that wants to be an entrepreneur, but it's just like biding their time. And, I I always worry that the urgent overtakes the important, you know, where it's like you wear your clients' problems week to week, and then a year goes by, then another year goes by, and you're never really fully investing in, in the sustainable business. One thing I don't know if you had thought about this much, but the productized service, the third ladder in this, was interesting. I never thought about this in this way of packaging maybe your consulting services, or saying, hey, I'll build, I'll, I'll make four videos for you a month for a $1,000 and the more efficient you get at doing the thing, your hourly drives up. And so it's it's almost like the SaaS for like service-based um, freelance. You know, it's funny because I maybe stumbled into this without totally thinking about it where I had
0: certain clients and this was like maybe eight or 10 years ago where I would build like the MVP for their SaaS product. And then they just wanted to be sure that I was like going to be able to fix things when they came up. So they paid me a retainer. And so it was kind of like, oh yeah, you get up to 20 hours per month for whatever, three grand a month. And so I'd be available. And when they had something, I would, I would say, okay, cool, I'll get, I'll knock this out for you in the next week. And we had very clear stipulations on like, you have to let me know at least a week in advance. And if you don't use all your hours, they expire, there's no rollover. Like there was very clear stipulations, but like soon I was getting paid for just a retainer, essentially, like if they use me, cool, if not, cool. And so maybe that's kind of similar to this, but I just didn't really think, you know, because there's only so many hours that you can really sell before you're selling more hours than is possible. Right. And so I didn't really think to scale that out, but um, there's some merit to it, right? You can be making money and not having to really do work unless something comes up. And um, yeah, so there's something to it.
1: It does top out at a certain point because I know, you know, the whole four-hour work week, you know, um approach of like outsource it, do it cheaply, but then the quality, your quality could suffer. Um you know, I did this with SEO consulting. It was like I had 20 hours a week guaranteed and it feels great, but you can only max it out so much. So that's talk I think that's was that talk more about your experience with that when you were
0: doing that with SEO consulting.
1: Yeah. So I had like two to three clients at at any given time and one was a, a sculptor of like bronze statues and they they basically guaranteed or asked them to commit to, I think it was like 20 hours a week or something like that at a certain rate. So I did them whenever, and it was a really nice casual relationship where I did wrote blog posts and did work throughout the week. And so it felt like sustainable and something I could really build upon when I was like thinking that was the path of like, okay, freelance, some work on something else on the side. And so, um, like you said, time freedom is great. You feel like, um, you're trusted, but there's like this fine line. If you're coasting too much or you slip, like they're going to check you. And so like, you do still feel like you have this boss and there's no getting away from that. And I didn't want to outsource it because it felt like lying almost of like, uh, you know, like I'm responsible for this work, but yet I just sent this to like the Philippines. So I know a lot of people are into that right now. And it's, uh, I don't know. It just feels a little icky to put your name on that. So that was good, but it, it wasn't the end game. It, it, I, I was still sitting there looking at SAS products thinking like, man, that's the, that's the win. Yeah. So this is
0: when maybe we said, Hey, let's start a business together. And our first go was a t-shirt company Cura's collection. Right. And mm-hmm. it was like inspired by your daughter. And we were like, all right, sell products. We're going to, you know, we were living in a two bedroom apartment together at the time. And we had like our kitchen turned into like our warehouse where we got some Costco shelving. We are yep. ordering t- we were getting them printed at a local printer and then orders came in we'd walk over to the kitchen we'd
1: throw it in a bag we had this like usps pickup you know every day or every few days or yeah, at the condo we'd walk it downstairs put it in the box put it by the front desk and it would ship out yeah yeah and so tell, tell me what you thought about that you know i at the time we thought of it i think where where it actually falls on, you know, on this ladder, on this framework of like, okay, that is a high level of scalability, a lot more work and manual, you know, manual processes. So in hindsight, it's like, yeah, it didn't work and it was going to be really hard. But then when you see lots of successes in the physical product space, you're like, okay, wow, that, that can be a successful model um, when done right. And I don't know if we necessarily didn't have a plan or or I don't think we were thinking that big. I think we were just thinking for the moment. Right. And It just felt like, oh, yeah, this could be huge someday. But like, we don't know anything about like running a physical products business. So in (laughs) hindsight, yeah, a tough niche. And uh, it wasn't a mass TAM. It wasn't a a maximum TAM. So that that was probably a short sighted, you know, take there.
0: Felt like the warm up business for us, where it's like we were learning how to work together, we were learning our kind of business personalities because of obviously growing up together, we knew each other in a certain way, but like doing business together, that was something where we had to kind of figure out and like maybe we we're subconsciously testing like, all right, are we each holding up our end of responsibilities? Are we each dependable? Are we each reliable? And, um, and so, in that, I felt like, all right, that, that could uh, we could look at it as a success in that way. I think I was, you know, learning some design stuff.
1: I was learning like WordPress. Photography. You did the so, photography. You did the photography photography for it, which is, you know, we don't use now, but like we could maybe in the future you could use it. Um, yeah. and that was the first time I had to think about SEO. I didn't know anything about it at the time. That was the first time I had to be like, well, how are people gonna find like these t-shirts? It can't all just be social media. Cause I mean, what year was this? I mean, this was, was this 2012, 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't as obvious as it is now of like, oh yeah, just get an influencer or just pay for ads on Instagram. It, it, it felt like you had to really work at social and we knew. I mean, didn't know Still, anything about that.
0: yeah, I think at some point it wasn't just financially viable. I think you were like, dude, I'm going to get a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so you went back to financial services. Um, I, can't, I went back to like freelancing. I think I was in grad school at the time too. So we each had our things. Um, but at some point we were like, we need to make a SaaS, we need to make a product that can scale. And um, initially we were thinking of like, what's a B2C, like the biggest TAM of the whole world. And then we kind of reined it back into like, what's a small approachable niche. Um, and it's funny because we viewed Spectora as kind of like another it was like our, uh, training SAS. And here we are like six, seven years later where it's like, no, this, this is actually a really amazing. This is thing. the thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this could this be the end game. You know, our life work. Yeah. Um, so like the reasons to get into SAS hopefully are pretty obvious for listeners, but like we can, we can dive into it a little bit, just in case there's angles people aren't thinking about, um, when you own the product and especially if you don't have to take funding, which of course is our whole theme here. Um, that control, that flexibility, and that potential for wealth, you know, at at the beginning, we weren't sure what would happen. Maybe we were hoping for like 100K, 200K a year to come in that we could live off of, and then use that money to fund building other things. Um, And now we're making, you know, 8 million a year that, and we don't, I think we have like 20 to 30% of our market, depending on how we want to calculate it. And that's, you know, there's still a lot of room for growth. There's a ton of room for add on products. There's a ton of room for, you know, downstream customers that our clients interact with. And so just the potential for SaaS um, is huge. And it's something that uh, I know a lot of people think about. It gets a lot of accolades in, in the news. But um, yeah, what was in your mind drawing you to a SaaS product?
1: I think the competition in the space was the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the appeal of it. Because you say that to someone who's trying to build a productivity tool for uh, founders, and it, it's a different tee up than, hey, this antiquated industry where they don't have a ton of SaaS, and so to me it was like the industry mattered, and just knowing the recurring revenue piece to it of just you know we I think we listened a little to startups for the rest of us maybe at the time that really just talked about SaaS, and so Rob Rob Walling's pod was pretty pivotal for me in terms of understanding. The model even like why it works
0: yeah like the business model like recurring revenue you know that's something that when when i was a freelancer when i was a you know whatever like you want something that just keeps coming in something where you're not constantly putting an effort and well you're constantly putting an effort to the product but if the product is good and people are paying you every month or every year for it and then you can start to count on them because you spent, then start to learn your churn numbers and you can say wow Like we have a sticky product. Once people join, they tend not to leave unless they go out of business. That's like a safety that, um, I. I, that's why I think I was scared to scale up the agency side because you hire full-timers and then you're constantly, you need to keep hunting for the next client or else you're going to have to lay off people that you just hired. If you can't feed them, then what? You dig into your own pocket and say, oh man, I don't want them to go somewhere else. So I'm going to pay them out of what I normally pay myself. And that sucks. Whereas when you're like, oh, we happen to know, like we just know X amount of customers are going to resubscribe every month. That's, that's power. That's power to scale. That's power to hire with assurance. That's power to invest in infrastructure. And um, as you see it grow, it just feels good to know. All right. And especially because we ran so conservatively, we tried to keep profit margins initially at like 50%. So that means like for every buck that came in, we'd spend 50 cents. And that's contrary to like all common wisdom. Most people, most SaaS companies are in the red. They keep spending early on. We were like, "Eh, let's play it safe. Let's pay ourselves. Let's be ready for like half our customers leaving us on any given month, which maybe we were too timid, but it
1: enabled a comfort and a sense of freedom. Yeah, there's more stability there when you take the the longer path, the longer curve. I don't I have to admit I w- I don't I didn't even I wasn't as intentional in thinking about B2B versus B2C early on because I think that's a big distinction too of like a business relies on your product for their business to run mm-hmm. whereas everyone just you know says B2C they're so fickle it's like their attention span is like squirrels and so B2B, it turns out, like niche B2B too, because everyone just thinks of like Zoom or like uh, Microsoft, so like, oh, that's enterprise B2B, but like niche vertical B2B doesn't get talked about a ton, first of all. Like all the pods okay. I listen to, it's all B C. <laughs> so yeah, well, I feel like it's still under underserved and under talked about. Did and you think could... much about this early on? I did. Um, because I think by the time
0: you host a podcast, you have a level of wealth where B2C plays make sense. But for us being some dudes with just, you know, tens of thousands in the bank to say, here's our runway. We had to have something that I think was an approachable niche where we could, there was a finite number of people, right? It wasn't, it's hard to conceptualize millions of people and what they want. It's easier to say, Oh, 20,000, 30,000 people. I can like learn that industry. And, um, And then the marketing spend doesn't have to be huge to reach 20 or 30,000 people. I mean, maybe there's a few conferences where you reach half of them. Um, Yeah. And then just in terms of B2B, we were, I think, exposed to this niche through our friends that, you know, we were like, oh, the bar isn't so high. If you're going for like, oh, I'm going to take out Zoom. Well, that's a really high bar. You know, The, the competitors at the time we got into our space were, Um, mostly also self-funded or kind of small time companies. And that felt way more approachable because the niche was so small at the time. I don't think any big companies were looking at it. It as like, Oh, let's invest a couple million here in hopes of, you know, making massive profits. Like it just doesn't make sense for bigger companies. And so, um, yeah, in my mind, this was like the way to go. I know that we had talked about like alternatives, like recommendation engines, like B2C style, like, How do we supplant Yelp and Facebook recommendations and stuff like that? And that probably would have been doomed for failure.
1: (laughs) So yeah,
0: in my mind, like if I'm telling people, you know, advice, it's like, go for a very small niche, maybe one where you have some personal exposure to, and one where you feel like you can really get yourself out there and connect with these people easily and cheaply. Um, And then just solve their problems. It's kind of
1: as simple as that, right? Yeah. Ask them simple, but not easy uh, or easy, but not simple. Before we get into pricing structure, because I want to talk about how we thought about our pricing model early on, I just want to talk about, or just mention the other items on like the most scalable part um, in in this article's opinion is like digital products, like eBooks, courses, downloadables. Everyone's doing that now. Everyone's uh, trying to sell you a course. Something you did, which is products sold in an existing ecosystem, like apps in the app store. Yeah, That's I a, it's a scalable model. Games. It is scalable. Right. But like, it's, what's your take on that, given your experience building apps?
0: Yeah, so I built a few iPhone games <laughs> and they were it was super fun. I mean, I still kind of fondly look back on those days of just like I was learning how to do animation. I was hand drawing all of my art. I was making sound effects into a microphone. And um, it, it was super fun. And, um, and then once I I don't think I had the marketing and sales mind, I just kind of put it out there and then hope people would stumble across it. And so I think if I was thinking more, this is where I needed you, right? This is where I was incomplete from a skill set perspective. I think I was good when I was like in-person selling stuff to people. Like when I was trying to convince college kids to go surfing and camping with me, I can get in front of people and, and kind of woo them all day. That's, that's my wheelhouse. Um, but putting stuff out into the world and then thinking about SEO, thinking about digital marketing, for some reason that's that part of my brain that I just can't get to wake up. <laughs> I can like maybe ideate on it with somebody, but like the implementation is is really hard for me for some reason. And so that's where I think you and I's skills were so complementary. Um, but yeah, that it, it was. Um, I think that the potential for scalability was there if I had the the skill set. Um, obviously there's hurdles, right? If you're existing on somebody else's platform, whether it's like a WordPress or iOS app store, not only do you have um, a gatekeeper that can like kind of crush your business at will, if you do something that they say is against the terms, then you're off the app store and you're trying to fight it. And meanwhile, people are like, hey, where's that update? You have a broken app out right now, whatever. Um, and then there's like the, I, I think at the time, uh, iPhone or Apple was charging 30%. I think maybe it's lower now, but It's uh, that's huge. That is a huge chunk of your profits going to the platform. And so, uh, you know, that's before your personal taxes and all your expenses. And so your profit margin needs to be massive, which means you need to hit like a massive audience. And that's really
1: hard in a crowded space where everybody's doing it. Where there's, I mean, there's literally like multi, you know, like conglomerate companies that are churning out games by the day that you have to compete with. They're like highly addictive games that have a formula. It's like, good luck competing with that. Um, but you did it to learn. I think that that was kind of the point. Like you went into it with the learning mentality. I remember. And that, that, that did so much more for you than if you were like, I'm going to make a million dollars and that would have been an uphill climb. But like you you went in to learn the skills that helped you build the first maybe iteration of Spector's app. So yeah, from ages like 18 to 35, I felt like my life goal was to learn all the skills I would need
0: to like run a business. And so, it, you know, all those little things that you need, everything from like development of web, development of mobile, all the way up to like the soft skills of like talking to people in person and like running a business, making people feel like they can trust you. Like all of those skills are, are so necessary. And if people think you can just like leapfrog from... Some people do, obviously. There's your, you know, companies where founders are young, um, but I think for most people, for your average people, like figure out places to learn skills.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would. I wish I would have worked for Spectora from 20 to 25, and I could have fast forwarded like the 10 or 12 years of learning that <laughs> I needed to for us to do well here. So, uh, and then the last one is marketplaces and social networks is like the highest kind of scale, and he references Uber, Facebook, eBay, it's, like. Obviously that's a very competitive and hard thing to do. Of course, you can reach everybody. So we won't even talk well, much about that. Yeah. So let's dive
0: into pricing. Like, mm-hmm. what do you remember from like when we were we we had our MVP?
1: And we're like, all right, what are we gonna charge for this? Like, what do you remember about that conversation? I just remember researching the industry and saying, like, how do we fall on the top end of this and the range of it? We did consider, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, we considered the the per report pricing model, like the metered pricing that I know a lot of companies in other spaces still do, where it's like per use. Um, that was somewhat appealing. But then I think we also just liked the idea of smoothed out revenue and and not riding the highs and lows of a, a given industry or company. So I just remember being scared in, to choose any price, but I think we looked at competitors and just settled on a number. I, we almost kind of were just like, oh yeah, that about 69 or 79 or whatever it was. And um, didn't overthink it too much. I don't know. I don't remember us spending months and months. Right. Do you remember like. I remember we
0: looked at our top competitors and they were usually selling like one time, like you buy it, we mail you a DVD, you install it. And then maybe they had some like kind of web add on stuff for like recurring revenue, or maybe that would come after a little bit later. And so I think we were just like, oh, well, if the average person's spending like eight or 900 bucks, let's just divide that by 12 and charge that per month. Mm-hmm. And maybe it seems super appealing to the new guy who's just like, Oh, instead of spending 800 bucks up front, I'll spend 80 bucks in the month. And, you know, and then if he succeeds and survives his first year, then we're in, you know, we're making profit on that for the rest of the all time. And if he doesn't, well, that's how it goes. And so, yeah, when we talked about the metered thing, I think there was this fear based on just our first like beta users how much like interaction and support they needed we're like would we get a flood of people that needed support but were paying us 5 bucks a month cuz they only did like one inspection you know we right. get the the non professional people whereas like if somebody can pony up for 80 bucks for the month they're probably a little bit more successful and then it feels better for us to give them you know whether it's 5 or 10 hours of time of support, because in the early days, there's a lot of support needed. Um, that it just felt better. And then, yeah, we could predict revenue. Um, and it kind of flew in the face of our industry. Like people were like, dude, this will never work. You're an idiot. There's no way that people are going to pay recurring for software in the home inspector space. And um, it's fun to have proven them wrong. I
1: still remember sitting in the dining room in, in this house uh, in our first couple months and maybe six months in and getting a call from a prominent person in our industry um, who's kind of an kind of an asshole. um, And just told me all over the phone, like you realize no one's ever going to pay $79 for software, right? You realize you're going to fail. Um, And I kind of, I was like nervous. I stumbled. I was like, "Uh, ah, well, see, you know, And it just feels amazing to have provided the value month after month after month. And then it just started showing people that like SaaS, is a great model for the customer too. That's what most people think. We all hate subscriptions, but then you realize that company shows up to give you value every month. Like Netflix, they don't stop churning out good content. You know They can raise prices now.
0: It's, yeah, it's not a bug, it's a feature, right? Like inspectors would come to us and be like, oh, well, why would you charge this? I don't feel comfortable paying it. And we would turn that around and be like, hey, listen, our promise to you is we're gonna earn that 79 bucks every month. Because we're going to show you, we're constantly building new features We're here for you for support. Um, essentially 24 seven in the early days, you and I had no, no boundaries there. And um, that we would just be their team, be part of their team and that they would feel like that was the best possible 79 bucks they ever spent that month. And we did that with the first customer and then the first 10 and the first hundred. And, and then the word spread that like, guys, this is the way to go. And now we have almost 7,000 customers and we're still growing. And so that's, that's powerful. I think that, um, you know, not hiding from it or making excuses, but saying like, here's mice this is good for you. That's a, that's part of the business model. That's why it works. And
1: uh, I, My only, I guess, experiential advice would be leaning into that model early, knowing you're going to lose money on like an hour spent basis. Like we, we may have made revenue, but we were operating at a loss for like the first six to nine months because we were there all day, every day. And I think a lot of people want that revenue and maybe think like, okay, I'm only going to give a fixed amount of hours because I I need to like maintain my work-life balance. And it's just like, I'm a fan of work-life balance now. But if I were telling someone, if I was talking to Kevin and Mike in that first year, I'm like, you wouldn't succeed if you want this harmonious balance and you want to go to Thailand every six months. It's like, no, we didn't do that. And that a lot of people don't like hearing that. No,
0: no. And especially, you know, and that's why I feel very like I, I feel like what we earn now, the equity that we have is very defensible because of all the risk and sacrifice we made in those early years of like, yeah, we're working 80 hour weeks regularly and not paying ourselves a dime for like years. Right. Yeah. That losing was, money. Like, yeah so essentially, and then we're watching our savings go down. We're spending money on infrastructure. We're um, yeah. It, essentially you're in the red and you know, it was our own money. So the bootstrapping mentality is it's, it's hard. It's a mental, um, it's a mind fuck to, to say like, okay, I believe in the long game. I believe that this is heading in good places and to constantly recommit with every single time you pick up the phone with every time you open up your coding console, you know, like that constantly recommitting to like, I'm going to give it my all for maybe years, knowing that this will pan out in the long run. Um, you know, and that's not, you gotta have a good business model. You gotta have a good space. You gotta have like, solid evidence that this will actually pan out and not just like fervent belief. Yeah, there's but some luck involves, involved. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, you need to have that. And so, yeah, like now we try and give our employees like good work-life balance. We don't crack the whip and say work long hours. And we're, we're super, I think, um, understanding as bosses. And that's okay because they're, again, they're, they're the ones that are trading time for money. They're not taking massive risks. And the ones that show us that they're like willing to put in these extra hours, that's where we're granting some equity and saying you're taking an ownership mentality. Here's some actual ownership, and you're going to have um, something gained in excess of you know what would have been if you're just working these few years uh,
1: when we have an exit event at some point. You put it wonderfully the other day when you you posed the hypothetical question of like what are you risking? And when people ask for equity, so the context is when people are like hey I want equity. And, you know they just got, they just got here. We have product market fit we have track record of, you know, of being here. And then yeah. you're like, okay, how do I approach this conversation about asking you like why you deserve a piece of our company when you've literally risked nothing? Yeah. You just show up yeah. and you do the job. It's a, uh, it's a different conversation for a different day. I think we've already done an episode on that, but um, we can get into that another time.
0: So getting back to the SaaS business model, the, another, I think benefit or this potential thing that you can do down the road is like add-on products, upsells. It's something where as you build an audience, you're building a, a consumer base that can just keep adding stuff on. They already trust you. They trust your product. And so when you have a premium version, gold, silver, bronze, whatever it is, that creates like just endless opportunity for scaling up even more. And that's something I know we're focusing on net revenue retention this year. We're going to try and create like kind of these expansion, revenue opportunities, add-on products that people keep asking about, but maybe it's too small a niche to include in the main offering. And so, cool, we can have that, you can pay for it, and it makes sense from our, our standpoint, it makes sense from the customer standpoint. That's, I think, um, something that gets overlooked when you're building you know, physical products. Yeah, you can create new product lines, you can have other things, but like with SaaS, it just feels like um, it's easier.
1: I think about it like um, either compounding gains in the stock market or friends or family that you've known for 5 6 10 12 20 years. It's easier to do stuff with them than it is to go meet someone brand new and I think we all maybe falsely assume oh we could do this again we need to prove to ourselves we can go like create an audience from scratch and be patient and work hard and grow it but it's like our emails get opened by like thousands of people when we send it. That's powerful. I think that's the leverage and power of land and expand kind of mindset, as opposed to let's just show up blank. No one knows us. That's going to take a while. Yeah.
0: And then in B2B, some businesses will have the opportunity to say, okay, who are my customers, customers, and what do they need? Because now we already have inroads to them. And so that's where, when we're talking about, Hey, let's solve problems for homeowners because home inspectors have exposure to homeowners. Let's um, make sure the incentives line up or the homeowner, or the home inspector feels like they get some benefit. The homeowner gets some benefit. We get some benefit. If everybody wins, we're just basically building a bridge between things that were needing to happen anyway. And um, that's where I think our future lies is there's like so much power in reaching what essentially becomes a B2C market through our B2B SaaS.
1: b 2 b and uh, Yes. What a concept. And I'm thinking about this on, you know, as we're talking of like, this works for so many industries. If you have software for veterinarians, guess what? You might be able to offer something to pet owners or even physical products down the road, because you're good. You, you're going to have that distribution. I think that's what it comes down to. Right. Is, is how do you reach those homeowners? You have a pipeline. And it's,
0: you're right. It's that compounding effect where like, as you grow, it's like your, your power and influence grow. And that enables all future opportunities. And so um, I think last episode we talked about, like, instead of trying to do, like, five different SaaS products at once, like, you can focus on one and then grow stuff on top of it. And I think um, Nathan Barry, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he referred to it as, like, the skyscraper model where, um, yeah, you build something really well and then you build stuff on top of it as opposed to building you know, a bunch of things and just hoping that each of them can eke out you know, some certain amount of your pie. And um, yeah, I mean, it lines up like just like investing. You can diversify and it's super safe and you'll get consistent returns, but you need to take a disproportional risk if you wanna make really massive returns. And um, I think that's the point of us like throwing ourselves into a business. This is how we have gotten decently wealthy and how we'll hopefully continue
1: to get more wealthy is by saying, we're keeping all our eggs in this basket and just building upon it. I love that comparison because at least when you diversify the stock market, all of those companies make money and pay dividends. So it like works. Whereas with startups, if you're not, if you don't have any customers, you're just buying lottery tickets over and over, <laughs> and, over and over and over as opposed to something actually sustainable. So yeah, I, I really like that analogy. All right, man. What else do we have to say on all this? As I think the path to an MVP for SaaS is maybe something, because like, this is how I would have had to think had you not been in my life. So I would have had to look at no code or low code tools like a bubble or something to create a minimum viable product to be able to even recruit a dev that would want to work with me to build out like the rails and the back end, or I would have had to learn myself. So I'm trying to think of the advice I would give to someone if I were me in a past life of... Build the audience first. I think that's that's kind of a, a common strategy you hear is write content about the thing you want to build or your plan to build to see if you can even get people interested to click and to read about it. And then I, I think it's never been easier in terms of these no-code tools. It's crazy. I've checked out just a couple, you know, peripherally, and the path to getting to even a functional MVP never been quicker. Hmm. Um, and so it, it was a lot harder seven years ago. <laughs> So I think content marketing is a way to, to really lay that groundwork to see if it even works by the time you launch something and get signups. Yeah, we see a lot of posts
0: in like the startups, subreddit, SaaS subreddit, people like looking for a technical co-founder. And, you know, when people are like, well, what do you got? I'm like, I have an idea. Well, think about this from the coder's perspective. If there's a coder, it's making a comfortable 150, 200K living, and you're asking them, Hey, step away from this and build this thing that I thought of for the next year or two. And then we're going to you know, spend a couple of years, not making money while we launch it. And then we're going to get rich. Maybe <laughs> that's, you know, like the, the person that just has an idea has no skin in the game yet. Like you should probably labor at something for a solid year. Yeah. Building an audience, building an MVP, put some money into it, pay the developer. Like you've got to do something because let's face it, like Ideas are a dime a dozen. Marketing and sales skills are way more prevalent than engineering skills, and so you got to learn something: design, product work, um, sales, marketing. Like that's that's uh, the function of supply and demand in our current marketplace right now. And so, yeah, that's
1: um, it, it's important advice for the people that are not technical. I like the way Nathan Barry did. Nathan Barry did it. He learned front end coding and design. So he built the front end, he started writing, he started creating content, he saved up 50 grand from like a previous job. He had 50 grand. That was his like seed investment. He used that to pay a friend for like half a year to build the rails back into it. Yeah. And so he had some, he had skin in the game, he learned skills and then he had a little runway to pay for the expensive, you know, um, high, low supply skills. Yeah. I know. Um,
0: what is Rob Walling's model? He has like the stair-step approach to bootstrapping, where you create like a like an audience, like some sort of marketing channel. Then you create um, like plugins or stuff that are built on somebody else's mm. infrastructure. Like just showing that you can do that. You know, there, there's definitely ways to um, display that you have some of the skills of like why you should be a good business partner before somebody jumps into starting a business with you. If you've never done anything, if you've never had like Um, a business or never even had like a job or you have a lot of responsibilities, why would anybody trust you as a business partner from a Reddit post, for example? And so, again, these are things that get built up over time. I know our world is very like immediate gratification and you want everything now, now, now. I I think becoming a successful SaaS founder is like a multi-year endeavor at at minimum, and maybe even a decade or longer, if you're thinking about building all the skills, building the the personal um you know getting the personal barriers out of the way i think a lot of people are um hold themselves back by just self-limiting beliefs or just things that they haven't refined within themselves um so yeah a lot that could be spoken on in that but that's probably for another episode
1: cool um all right man that, that's all i got good stuff cool good stuff
0: all right later, later you